you a healthcare professional who would like to hear from experts in the field of pain care? Or maybe you are caring for a family member who is experiencing pain or health challenges and you would like more information. Perhaps you are a healthcare educator who wants to better inform your students or staff. Then you are in the right place. This is Faces of Pain Care, the show where we interview experts in the field of pain care. And now, the co-creator of the Wong Baker Faces Pain Rating Scale and the executive director of the Wong Baker Faces Foundation, Connie Baker. Hello and welcome to Faces of Pain Care. I'm your host, Connie Baker. It is so nice to get back to this podcast after a rather extended break. In February of 2017, I was diagnosed with breast cancer. I say that I had a wee bout of cancer and a boatload of cancer treatment, but I'm doing great now, feeling stronger every day and excited to be back talking with fascinating people. And today, we're going to be talking about practical tools for coping with trauma during and following a disaster. Dr. Lori Nadell knows about this firsthand, having experienced disasters in her life, as well as helping people as a psychotherapist including working with teenagers whose fathers were killed in the 9-11 attacks on the World Trade Center in New York and with fellow survivors of Hurricane Sandy in Long Beach, New York. She recently wrote and published The Five Gifts, Discovering Hope, Healing, and Strength When Disaster Strikes. I highly recommend this book. I learned this from Dr. Nadell's book, and that is that according to the National Institute of Mental Health in Bethesda, Maryland, 70% of us, approximately 223,400,000 people, will go through at least one traumatic event in our lives. Some, 17% of men and 13% of women, will experience more than three. Those are sobering statistics, but Dr. Nadell offers hope for individuals, families, and groups recovering from trauma. Dr. Nadell, thank you so much for joining me today on Faces of Pain Care. Thank you so much. Uh, it's an honor to be here, Connie. I'm a, I'm a long-standing admirer and, and, uh, and uh, I'd say I, I hope a good tenant of, uh, of your brilliant work. Oh, thank uh, you. The, the Wong Baker scale. Uh, it, is, it is just brilliant. It, it's cross-cultural. It's universal. Mm. Um, it, it's nonverbal. It, it's just, I, I can't tell you how powerful it is in uh, helping people who are in pain yeah. to get a sense of, of what it is they're experiencing. Wow. Well, thank you so much for saying that. I know you've worked with a lot of people who have um, experienced pain. And, and I want to hear about um, really your story about how you got into this area of expertise and and uh, really what drew you to becoming a specialist in acute stress, trauma, and anxiety issues? Well, thank you for uh, asking. I, I spent my first 20 years of my career in the news business, uh, mostly in TV newsrooms where I was a writer and producer. Uh, I spent a year in the field as a reporter uh, working for Newsweek and United Press International, and that was uh, in Chile during the state of siege. Uh, after President Allende was overthrown. So I had field experience and I had a lot of very intense newsroom experience and uh, I burned out. I mean, I, was, I, I am a recovering adrenaline junkie and I basically burned out and I ended up with a chronic fatigue virus 
that could not be treated with conventional medicine. So I started to study meditation. I started to stu- to learn about mind-body uh, medicine and Chinese herbs. And I recovered in two years. And then I was facing, you know, the reality of living with a chronic condition and knowing that I couldn't go back to the newsroom because I wouldn't be able to handle the pace and the and the travel and the un, and the and the crazy hours, and then uh, my other option would have been to work the night shift at McDonald's because <laughs> I was overqualified. You know, I I was I I didn't even have the qualifications for like other types of work because I was over specialized. So I went back to school, and um, I decided that I would start a uh, private practice helping people learn how to use the mind to help heal the body because those experiences had been had had a profound influence in my life and i was able to heal from two severe illnesses uh, basically primarily using mind body techniques and so um, you know that that kind of that's that was that's been my driver basically um, ever since ever since the early 1990s Wow. And I've been very fortunate in uh, working with people who are in acute stages of uh, pain or uh, acute stress, which is what happens right after exposure to a sudden life and death event, whether it's witnessing or surviving an accident of some kind or escaping um, you know, a mass casualty event like a bombing or a shooting, um, anything that kind of completely unsha- you know, shakes up your sense of what normal is and rips the ground out from underneath uh, somebody, uh, you know, that, that is what a traumatic event is. Mm-hmm. And that will trigger um, the, a lot of very intense, weird physical, mental, and emotional reactions that if you don't know about them, if you don't understand them, you'll really think that you're going crazy. Mm. And so information, what we call psychoeducation, and these emotional first aid tools or exercises that I've developed along the way can really help lower your stress levels and take the edge off um, you know, within, a, within less than a minute. Yeah. I mean, it, it, it will, and and it's not a substitute for any other kind of care or medicine. It really is. It really is first aid. It's psychological first aid. Wow. Well, give us some examples of some of those tools that you've developed. Well, um, I think that the easiest one to use and the one that every, everybody seems to be able to do immediately and, and instantly is color breathing. And with color breathing, you take a second to check in and see where, you're, where something doesn't feel right, where, you're, where your stomach is tense, where your um, heart is racing, where your hands are sweating, um, whatever it is you might notice in your body, your head might be, you know, might have a headache, whatever is going on in your body, just take a moment, focus in, and then in your head, in your mind, ask what color would help you to feel better. Now, this engages your your unconscious healing intelligence. That's the part of your mind that knows how to make healthy new skin cells when you cut yourself. You know, that's the part of your mind that knows how to heal when you get a cold or any or any other kind of condition. That's the part that brings us back together. So when you ask, you know, what color will help you to feel better, you're not imposing the color from your ego. Uh-huh. You're 
allowing the color to present to you. And, and you will either hear the word or you'll see a flash of color or you'll just feel like you're being carried away in a wave of blue. But you'll know, you know what that color is. And then when you inhale, you take in that soothing color and you allow it to find its way anywhere in your body that wants to feel relaxed and calm and released. And then as you exhale, you breathe out anything you don't want to feel, anything that you, whether it's mental, emotional, physical, any pain, any hurt, um, you just breathe it out by breathing out a different color. Mm -hmm. And you do this like usually two to three times, two to three rounds of inhale the color, uh, inhale the soothing color, exhale the, exhale the stress or exhale whatever it is you don't want. Within two to three breaths, you will feel much, much better. It really will take the edge off. Oh, you that's know, wonderful. You know, it will clear your head. And the, there's another technique, which is, you know, now I call it kind of like swiping the app, but it's really, it used to be called like clearing the mind. Mm -hmm. And what you do is, you know, when, when, especially when people are starting to panic, you know, when people are starting to freeze up, right. Um, you know, they, they, if you imagine that your mind is like a cursor, and you're going to swipe the cursor down to the soles of your feet so that all of your attention is on the soles, on the bottoms of your feet. Mm -hmm. And all you can hear is the sound that your feet make as they rub against the carpet. And all that you can see is what your feet can see, which is like nothing. <laughs> and, all, and all you can hear, all you can feel, and all you can see is what your feet are doing. And if all of your attention is focused on your feet, that app that does anxiety or panic, that's going, it's like you disconnect the app right away. Mm -hmm. It changes the channel because your feet can only do feet things. Yeah. Your feet cannot do anxiety. Your feet cannot worry. Your feet cannot, you know, they, they can't go, what if? Right. They, you know, if all of your attention is focused on the soles of your feet and you're listening to that sound and you're only feeling the contact that your feet are making and it's best to do it with bare feet, mm -hmm. but you can also do it with shoes. You will basically swipe that app that is doing the coulda, shoulda, woulda, what ifs that's, you know, ruminating, that's worrying. Your mind is going to be like 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 an empty, clear screen. Mm. And you are going to be able to think clearly mm -hmm. at least for a little while. You know? Right. It's and you're breaking that cycle you know, of, of right. chatter in your brain. Right, right. Right. It, you know, it's it's first aid. You know, it's not going to replace sustained, you know, work on what that feels like. I mean, you know, the the the, the encounter with violent death, you know, the encounter with people getting killed, the being in that arena, um, hearing people screaming, seeing wounded bodies. I mean, these things are very disturbing, even to professionals. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And I think that one of the things that drew me into this field after the news business was I, I spent many years um, sitting in rooms where you would have 20 monitors from all over the world and they would be beaming in satellite feeds from, you know, India, from Asia, from China, from Singapore, from the Middle East, from Egypt, from Jordan, from Lebanon, from uh, Panama City, from, uh, from, from uh, the London subway. 
during the IRA period of bombings. Mm -hmm. And you would look up and you would see like a wall of total mayhem and death in wow. every every part of the world. And they would just see like like smoke and bodies and fire and bodies and, you know, wounded people. And, you'd, you know, you'd be listening to the audio. And I did that for years. Now, I know that that affects you. Uh -huh. And I know that, that it affected me in a way of wanting to be able to do something to make a contribution to the lives of people who had been shattered by some kind of event that we normally think of as breaking news. Right. Some horrible event that happened in somebody's life that the cameras are going to leave and everybody's going to forget about that person. Yeah. And it's like... I'm honored that I was called to do this work, but I feel like I'm emptying the ocean with a teaspoon some days. Right. Well, and you describe in your book that you and your colleagues would do these stories, but often wonder what happened to the people who were right. in the story. Right. Right. What happened to those people? You know, what happened to the people? I remember there was a McDonald's in San Diego and that was one of the first mass shootings, you know, and I, and, you know, and I, for years, you know, it's not like I sit there wondering it all the time, but from time to time, you know, you see another shooting or you go past a McDonald's and, you know, like something can just trigger the question. It, it would, and, you know, and I would think, you know, what about those poor people that were just sitting in McDonald's having breakfast and this horrible, horrible thing happened to them? whatever happened to them right and how are they living their lives right. and i know that most people don't think about that but i think about it because i was exposed to so i mean thousands and thousands and thousands of stories like that in the course of my 20-year career right well and we may think about it but like you said it's it's like the life of the story is over it's no longer on the screen anymore and we tend to go on our merry way but what you describe is that it often takes three to five years to recover from a major trauma event in your life. That's right. You know, people, and I, I'm thinking about this a lot, you know, as the first anniversary of, of the hurricane, the big hurricanes are coming up. And I think a lot about Hurricane Harvey, which is like the forgotten hurricane. I mean, we never hear about it on the East Coast or on the network news. And, um, I know that people there must be suffering horribly uh, because they they were not treated fairly by the banks or the insurance company or their or there were unscrupulous contractors or you know they 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 just um, you know they've gone through their all of their credit because they can't go home because they didn't get money to fix their house and they have to maintain two residences they have to pay the mortgage I mean this, these disasters these natural catastrophes have a financial ripple effect that traumatizes people for years sometimes even forever. Mm -hmm. And we and so I want to write about that uh, because people think that once you get to the first anniversary, it gets better. Mm -mm. And actually, for many people, the day after the first anniversary is when they wake up with this like uh oh feeling in their stomach because you wake up the second day and uh oh you know nothing has changed. You're still dealing with the same mega loss in your life. Uh, you know, your life as you knew it was shattered and, um, you know, there, there's a piece of you that's missing and never going to come back mm -hmm. and you have to live with it. And that starts to hit you on the beginning of the second year. Mm -hmm. And that's when people begin to grieve. You know, and, um, you know, you don't really get a pass on that. You may get a shortcut or you may get, you know, a distraction, but um, 
sooner or later the the emotional you know that pit in your pit in your heart just opens up mm-hmm. and it can be unexpected it can happen years later but you know, that that's that's what makes this such a such a tough thing to live with because for the rest of your life you're always going to be who you were after the event mm. you can never go back to being who you were before the event mm-hmm. Well, and I was also struck, you're very uh, transparent and and authentic, it feels, in your book about your experiences with with trauma and how uh, what I I heard was just a lot of grace for yourself to have time to work through the trauma. And one example was your go kit. Mm -hmm. Yes. And how how you would go back to that, you know, Time after time, and and twice a week, right? Twice a week, compulsive, (laughs) compulsive ritual. I could actually observe myself going through the compulsive ritual, and I could laugh at myself and say, "This makes no sense because you know it's it's Thursday, and you checked it on Monday, and nobody else knows it's there. So why are you doing that?" And after a while, um, probably after about. 18 months to two years, I think, you know, I think after the second anniversary uh, I've, of Hurricane Sandy, I stopped doing that. Yeah. And I and when something happened, there was another uh, tropical storm or hurricane that was headed towards uh, the barrier island where I, where I was living. Uh-huh. And I thought, um, gee, I'd better check my go kit because they said, have your evacuation plan ready. And so I went to check my go kit and I realized that I hadn't touched it in six months. I went, Oh, this is so great. I'm getting better. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> I must be getting better. I haven't checked it compulsively like twice a week. I don't, I didn't even think about it for six months. This is a really good sign. Right. Right. Well, and it's, it's helpful. I think it's, that's a good example of one way to be able to prepare yourself for something, not to think negatively about life, but boy, with the statistics, you, you pointed out in the book, um, the chances are that we're going to experience something traumatic or know somebody who does. So, so being able to have uh, solutions already planned, uh, learned that we can use to to really navigate turbulent times um, when they happen um, is going to benefit us greatly. Uh, I think that because you know, like it or not, and I certainly wish it was different. Um, You know, we're not in calm waters now. You know, we are in a turbulent and unpredictable cycle. And I use the word cycle because all cycles come to an end and turbulent weather comes to an end. And even, uh, you know, a destructive intelligence like the Nazi empire comes, it came to an end. They always, the destructive intelligence can only destroy itself. And ultimately it will destroy itself because it doesn't know how to create anything new. It only knows how to destroy. So it may be that we're caught up in this vortex, you know, kind of like a tornado or, you know, a cyclone kind of like Dorothy in the land of us. And we're twirling around and around and we really don't know where we're going to land or, or when, or if we're, 
we're going to land or what 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 is our nation going to be like after this turbulence starts to settle down mm-hmm. and you know we can't even predict that in any kind of an orderly or organized way because we don't know we're we're really you know in that kind of in zen they say that you know the the real secret to life is to be poised you know and balanced right in the moment right between the past moment and the next moment. So if you could just imagine like like a little little like ball or a little dot that represents the moment and you know you're standing in it but you're kind of moving like one foot is behind you and one foot's a little bit ahead of you and um, you know you're moving into the unknown because really we only know what we have right here right now because tomorrow everything could be different. This is a basic teaching in Buddhism and Eastern religions that we need to learn how to spiritually expect the unexpected then that you know that that expectation that we have that everything should be organized and predicted predictable and that we should be able to plan our work and work our plan and that everything should go according to the spreadsheet or the timeline or the flow chart mm. um, you know we're not living in that kind of a, a period now you know we're we're living in a we're living in a turbulent turbulent period of events in terms of natural disasters, environmental disasters, and what we call intentional or human-to-human disasters, you know, these incidents of mass shootings or mass casualty events, um, they are they are unfortunately on, on the increase right now, and hopefully they will not increase further, but, you know, right now the, the curve is going in that direction, and it's, um, it's creepy, and uh, it's scary, and it's ugly. But, um, you know, how do we deal with those realities of of the, the, the times in which we're living? Mm-hmm. And, you know, I don't even know that any of us will ever understand why, uh, you know, how we came how we came to this point. But we are here, whether we believe we've chosen to be here or not, mm-hmm. uh, because each of us has a contribution to make. Um, you know, to hold the fort or to stay steady or to help somebody move forward or to just, um, you know, be present for somebody else who's going through a hard time. Right. We all have a role to play right now. Right. Yeah. And that's what makes it, you know, I think potentially an empowering time, um, even for, for those of us who are not um, prone to be public figures like the uh, five students from the high school in Parkland, Mm -hmm. you know, exceptional, they're exceptional kids. It's an exceptional community, but most of us are not wired up, you know, to uh, take public positions that readily or that easily, you know, it's, it's, it's a question of nurture and nature. Mm -hmm. And, um, you know, the the great parenting and great schooling and, you know, like like a very strong belief um, in what's important to them, and, and it's wonderful to see that. But right. we all have something like that to contribute. Well, and you know? and your book and the work that you're doing equips people to be able to do that role, know what that role is, and be able to to move into that role when they're when it's called on. And uh, one of the things that I was thinking about as I was reading your book is. Um, really for those of us that maybe we haven't experienced a, a disaster ourselves or a health crisis, but how, how's the best way to support a friend or family member who's experienced trauma? Um, what, what can we do to, to be there for them? 
Um, I think it's really important to let the other person know that, you know, you don't, you, you don't know what they must be feeling. Right. You know, I think, you know, very often, oh, I know what you're going through. The fact is we don't know what anyone else is going through. And I think that, um, you know, the other thing that, you know, when we, when, when pe- well-meaning people start to offer advice, um, instead of comparing, you know, saying, oh, you know, it's not so bad. You could be in, you know, you could be living in Syria. Right. That's what one, one person was recently told. Or, you know, I don't know why you're complaining. My grandmother was in Auschwitz. You know, Viktor Frankl, who was one of the great authors and, and uh, uh, one of the people who came out of, uh, of Auschwitz to speak out about what happened during the Holocaust. He, he said that everyone has his own Auschwitz. Mm. Yeah, everybody's everybody's pain, everybody's prison, everybody's concentration camp is theirs. You know, everybody's torture is theirs. Everyone has something that's extremely painful to them, and that's uh, and and you can't say that one person's pain is more important than another person's pain. Mm-hmm. Correct. And and he was the one who said that. Mm-hmm. And I think that you know, in these times, very often your friends don't know what to say to you if you're hurting. Uh, because they feel they feel helpless when they see that you're struggling with something, and so they try to make you better so that they can feel helpful. And they'll say things like, uh, "Why don't you smile more?" Right. Or, you, know, you, "You should go. You should join Match.com." Yeah. Uh, you know, your husband's been dead a year. Why don't you start dating? Yeah. Uh, you know, uh, you know, or you should be grateful for that. You should be grateful um, that you only lost your home instead of uh, children. My, my, my neighbors, you know, went through the Sandy Hook massacre. People, people say the most bizarre things mm-hmm. to people who are suffering. Mm-hmm. And so, you know, if you say to someone, "I can't imagine what it must be like," um, is there anything I can do? Um, can I get you some water? What would you like to eat? Because when somebody who's traumatized makes choices about eating and hopefully eating relatively you know healthy food uh but you know whatever it is you're going to eat to get through you know the first like three to six days it's really not going to kill you um if you want potato chips if you want you know peanut m&ms you know if you want a hot dog you know eat you know eat but eat you know but eat well enough to give yourself energy mm-hmm. because you're going you have to make decisions and you have to make survival decisions at a time when you're in shock mm-hmm. and so you want to make sure that if you start choosing what you're going to eat at regular meal times it will give you back a little bit of a sense of control right because you were helpless you know we're helpless to pre- to prevent these sudden horrible events but we can make conscious, mindful choices about taking care of ourselves mm-hmm. um, when we're in shock. And none of us are perfect. I'm not saying, you know, they say avoid alcohol. Some people, you know, will numb themselves with alcohol, which is not healthy. But some people can have, you know, a couple of glasses of wine and feel a little bit mellow. And, you know, they're, they're cool. They're, they're going to be fine. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. You know, everybody, everybody's different. But I think you have to kind of know yourself and know, um, you know, how much is uh, you know, going to be comforting, like comfort food, how much comfort food is, you know, kind of just to kind of help you to calm down. And, and you know, you like that salty, crunchy or you like, you know, uh, gym sticks or you like, mm-hmm. uh, 
you know, something sweet, you know, whatever that is, that's going to, you know, give you that soothing feeling that you're going to need over the next, you know, few days, actually, probably over the next month, um, you know, go in moderation, but, you know, answer those needs, respect those needs, because they're going to help you to feel connected to your body. Uh-huh. And, and and you're going to need all of your senses as you navigate, you know, the, the very painful first, uh, f- you know, few weeks to a month. Yeah. Well, so so then as the friend of of uh, or family member of somebody who's going through trauma, it sounds like the the answer is to see about those real practical needs uh, right. like food and water and uh, uh, laundry or whatever you know, right. things that they might need and, and, and really listen, don't, you don't have to have the answers. You don't have the answers. So just be right. listening, be a, be somebody that can be available, um, for whatever that person is needing. Exactly. And you know, the, to me, the power question is always, what do you need? Uh-huh. You know, what do you need? And, um, you know, an offer, you know, to, okay, you know, it, um, uh, you know, if you need privacy, I'll go away or be happy to leave. Right. Uh, if you'd like me to stay, you know, I'll, I'll sit with you. You know, can I get you anything? Um, it's okay. And the other thing is to say, it's okay if you don't want to talk. It's all right. You know, it's it's not that person's role to entertain you as the friend mm-hmm. by telling their story. You may want to encourage them, you know, to, to at least not to isolate. Mm-hmm. Because, it, you know, right. when people get depressed after any kind of a tragic event, if they are, if they are left alone and they isolate, um, it can spiral into depression very, very quickly. Mm-hmm. And the kind of depression that, you know, it you, you may never get out of it. It may just become your baseline state. So you don't want that to happen. And, you know, you can you can actually help to prevent that from happening by staying connected to other people, at least for the first, you know, I would say, you know, couple of months, you know, six weeks. Stay very connected to people. Um, if there are people you know who went through the experience or went through a similar experience, um, you know, just reach out, you know, say, hey, ha- you know, how are you? Um, it, it, it's going to create a connection that I, I call it the golden chain of empathy. Mm-hmm. You know, it really builds your golden chain of empathy. And, you know, that's that's a, a chain that can't be broken. Right, right. Well, I think community community is essential. And that, that's one of the things that that is very important to me and I really encourage people to build community, really invest in the people around you because um, there will come a time where you're going to need each other. And that's right. uh, And that is not the time to build community. I mean, it it may happen as through a shared experience, but how much greater if you've built a history and a, um, with people, I know I, I have the best people around me that I could possibly imagine. And, and going through my cancer was, um, you know, I, they just poured life into me, you know, time after time. But I, another thing that I did and was be very clear about what I needed and what I didn't need. And um, I, I actually wrote this in an email I sent to my, I called them my healing dream team. And uh, let them know what would, what I needed 
and and I didn't want people dropping by and saying hello. I did. I wanted to know if people were going to come by and you know specific things like that. But staying right. but staying connected with them in a way that was right. really um, life giving to me. Yes, that and that's wonderful. And sometimes people say that interestingly enough, it took an experience. Um, you know, for many people, you know, uh, cancer or serious illness, mm-hmm. it gives them the experience that they um, of connection that they weren't able to get, um, you know, when they were working all the time because they were too busy or raising a family right. or, um, you know, achieving in the outer world. Because sometimes um, when you're, you know, when you're busy being, you know, quote unquote successful, um, you know, people, you, you don't usually need to ask people for help. Right. But, you know, it's when we're vulnerable that we need to be able to ask people for help. Mm-hmm. And and being able to know what you need is not something that you can assume just happens. Sometimes you right. don't really know. And I think that's where right. some of the tools that you uh, describe in your book, like the color breathing or um, the the work with the feet, if you are able to get really coherent in your heart and in your mind then you are able to know what it is that you need and and have a better sense of um of how to move forward that's that's very absolutely true um yeah and having grace i mean that's just having grace for yourself and for each other it it just takes as long as it takes you know, I, I have a quote, I, I think it's in uh, my chapter about my, my life with PTSD, and it's from the King of Belgium uh, a year after there was a terrorist attack in, in Brussels. And uh, he, he went to the one-year anniversary of that horrible event, and he gave this beautiful speech, and, and he ended it with, let us dare to be tender. You know, mm. let, us, let us listen to each other. Uh-huh. You know, let us be there for each other. Let us dare to be tender. That's beautiful. Yeah. And, um, you know, I, I think that really says it all. You know, people, you know, we, we don't know how to ask for help when we're wounded mm-hmm. uh, emotionally because we don't want to be perceived as like downers or complaining or, you know, we, we, just, we don't want to be perceived as, uh, you know, uh, ungrateful or angry or, you know, whatever. Mm-hmm. So most of us, you know, most people I know, they kind of soldier on. Mm-hmm. you know, as best they can, and they don't really reveal to uh, somebody else the depth of what they're feeling. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. But when something major happens, you know, you know, all the masks come off. Right. And I remember listening to a doctor who was a pioneer of palliative care at George Washington University, and she said that she was honored to work with people who knew that they were going to die. Because all the masks come off. Oh. And, and she got a standing ovation. And I think that that is so true. Mm-hmm. I agree. Well said. Wow. Well, thank you so much for being here today. I, I think uh, we can take the masks off and be tender with yep. one another and um, equip ourselves for whatever we have ahead of us in our life. And I know that your book has um, is just full of compelling stories and humor and solutions that can help people. Thank you very much. It's kind of a roadmap and a first aid kit. 
And, uh, you know, I think that if you open the book at any page, uh, my intention is that you find something, some stray thought or a phrase that can lift you up or help you in that moment. That's wonderful. Yes. Well, we'll have more information about the five gifts on our uh, episode page. And we'll also link up with Dr. Nadell's website. Uh, she still sees clients on uh, Skype or by phone. So right. you can, people can find out more about that on your website, right? Right. right. That is true. Yes. Okay. Well, any, any last thoughts before we close? Uh, well, I, I just want to wish everybody a, a very, um, <clears throat> excuse me, I think this is a very meaningful 4th of July. Um, I've lived long enough so that I, it kind of reminds me of 1967-68 during Vietnam. You know, it was an also time of uh, turmoil and, and self-questioning. Mm -hmm. And I think it's a really good time to honor the values that our country was founded upon so I and, and for those of you listening from all around the world, I wish everybody um, a, a very peaceful journey um, in this lifetime. We, we are all in this together and we'll get through it together. Well said. Listeners, we would love to hear from you. Please visit our website at wongbakerfaces.org or email me at Baker at wongbakerfaces.org. Thank you for joining us today and Thank you for making a positive difference in someone's life. Take care. This has been another great episode of Faces of Pain Care. Thank you for listening. Don't forget to subscribe on iTunes so you don't miss any of the new episodes. And be sure you check our previous shows for more information that will keep you informed and inspired.